you would take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 3. Last week we began a, a sort of series within a series, I suppose, if you would like to call it that, looking at the new birth, what it is to be born again. Last week we considered the necessity of the new birth. Today we turn our attention to look at the nature of the new birth, and we will see how far we get today. Uh, we might continue to consider this topic next week, not because of any other reason than how important this is. And not only is it important that we get it right, but it's important that we understand what God has done in our hearts. Not just so that we can say, hey, you're not saved because you're trusting in the prayer, not the work of God, but so that we can look inward and see if there is new life there and we can know where it came from and what happened and the work that God has done so that we can worship Him, glorify Him, and you know what? Enjoy Him, this side of glory. We're in John chapter 3. I know you just got settled in. If you would please stand with us. John chapter 3. Verses 4 through 8. This is the word of the one true and living God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a great time of singing your praises and worshiping you. We thank you that everything we just sang is true. We're not singing things that we wish were true, but all of that is true about you, that you're the everlasting God. We praise you. We give you honor. Now, as we turn our attention to hear from you, from your word, I ask that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that you would empower me as inadequate as I am to do this, that you would empower me and use my meager effort for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. We have four, four major headings that we're going to try to work our way through today. We're going to look at Nicodemus's misunderstanding. Then we will look at the supernatural nature of the new birth, and then the inadequacy of human effort, and lastly, by God's grace, the sovereign work of the new birth. So we begin by looking at Nicodemus's misunderstanding in, in verse 4. 
And if you recall last week, as I said a moment ago, we were looking at the necessity of the new birth. We were introduced to this individual named Nicodemus, who is, we learned, is a very important figure in Jerusalem. He would be well known. He was well to do. He was very religious. He was an affluent member of society. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. He would have known the law better than you and I know pretty much anything. He was very well versed in Torah as a teacher. We know that Jesus will go on to call him the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus is someone who knows the law. He is somebody who has staked his whole life on the law, studying the law, teaching the law, applying the law. And he has come to Jesus now in the cover of night And he has confessed that we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know that. No one can do the signs that you're doing without God being with him. To which, of course, Jesus has responded, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you haven't really seen anything. You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And then we get to verse 4. Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? How can a man be born when he is old? And this is almost comical if it wasn't sad. Because Jesus just told Nicodemus in verse 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 4, here Nicodemus might as well have said, You're right, I don't see the kingdom of God because of his foolish answer he's proving that he does not see the kingdom of god because he's asking gee you're talking about being born again well how can a man be born when he is old how is that possible nicodemus is clearly taken aback by what jesus has said jesus tells him in verse 7 that nicodemus should not be astonished do not marvel that i'm telling you you must be born again And then in verse 10, Jesus points out the absurdity uh, that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel and doesn't understand what's being said. So clearly here in Nicodemus' response, he's taken aback and surprised and perhaps even a bit perturbed. Do you know who I am? You can almost hear him think. Do you know who I am? I'm Nicodemus. I'm, I'm a member of the Sanhedrin. I'm a Pharisee. I know the law. I came to you even giving you a compliment. I called you rabbi, and I know that you haven't studied under anybody. What what do you mean? Do you know who I am? I am righteous. I am a righteous man. Jesus, looking past all of the pretense, no, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He was no ordinary Jew. He was a very highly regarded individual. Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, as we have said time and again. So if anyone should understand the concept that Jesus is dealing with here, it's Nicodemus. If anybody should understand what Jesus is saying, it's someone who has studied the law as much as Nicodemus has. But remember, they didn't only have the law, they also had the prophets. And many promises and many times it is said throughout the prophets that you you have to be made new. Isaiah talks about you're red as scarlet. I'm going to wash you. 
and you'll be white as snow. But here is Nicodemus completely missing the point. He can't understand, even with all of the scripture that is in his mind and his heart, that he needs the new birth. You're saying one must be born again. How can a man be born when he is old? What a ridiculous thing you're talking about, Rabbi. He's failing to see the necessity and nature of the new birth, not just in a general sense, but for himself. In this way, Nicodemus serves as a sort of example of how grossly the Jews of the time misunderstood Jesus at nearly every turn. We see that displayed here in our passage, but again in chapter 6, verse 52, when Jesus says that we have to drink his blood and eat his flesh, you recall that people were astonished, saying, how can this man expect us to eat his flesh? How is he going to give us his flesh to eat? They could not understand the spiritual nature of what he was saying. Then in chapter 8, of course, Jesus makes the statement that Abraham rejoiced that he would see Jesus' day. What did the Jews say? You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? They are failing to see time and time again that Jesus is something other. Jesus is not just any other person. He's not just a great teacher. He's God in the flesh. So it's really no surprise here then that Nicodemus, even renowned teacher as he is, that he fails to grasp the truth that Jesus is teaching. How can a man be born when he is old? Oh, right, here's a suggestion. Can he re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? Is that, is that how it would work? Nicodemus doubles down, doesn't he? He's really sticking to his guns here. It was already absurd to, to not understand what Jesus was saying, as learned as he is. But now he doubles down and says something that's really actually kind of crude. An old man is going to re-enter his mother's womb and be born again. But Nicodemus is so stuck in his literalistic interpretation of spiritual matters that his suggestion is all centered upon physical effort. I want you to really think about how absurd it is what Nicodemus is saying. Jesus tells him, the one must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Clearly, Jesus is saying something spiritual because you can't go to the kingdom of God. There's not a castle somewhere that you can say, hey, we're going to go see the kingdom of God during our summer vacation this year. There's not a physical location that you can go to see the kingdom of God. So evidently, Jesus is speaking of some kind of spiritual reality, yet Nicodemus's question is entirely focused on the physical. He is entirely focused on what a man must do to make himself be born again. This is his literalistic understanding. Jesus is using language that would clue us in, but it's right over Nicodemus's head. We also see that in the fact that he's using the term born. Come on, Nico. Did you help with your first birth? Did you help yourself be born the first time? No. 
So clearly this word is being used to indicate that this is something you cannot do. You didn't cause yourself to be born the first time. You think you'll be the direct cause of your rebirth. There must be something that I must do to be reborn. Nicodemus thinks this way in part because he doesn't realize how truly bad off he is. As a Jew, he would believe he was guaranteed a spot in the kingdom of God. He's a child of Abraham. You remember Paul speaking of his old life in Philippians. He was saying, I, I, was, uh, I was a true child of Abraham. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's talking about all of the things that Jews trusted in, that Jews would have found as very impressive. And Nicodemus is no different. He's trusting in all of the physical and outward of his own life. I'm a part of the covenant people of God. I'm, I'm, I'm in. But not only that, I'm a Pharisee. So I believe in the resurrection. And I believe that the way to be resurrected to the next life is to be righteous. And boy, am I righteous. This is how a man like Nicodemus would think. But don't you know what is written in the prophet Jeremiah, Nicodemus? That the heart is wicked and deceitful? Don't you know what is written in 2 Chronicles 6, 36? That there is no one who does not sin? What about the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1? At the very beginning, it is written that the whole head is sick and the heart is faint. How can you possibly think that you can contribute so much as a lifted finger to your spiritual rebirth when you are so utterly and totally ruined by sin? Yes, even you, Nicodemus. Though it is easy to look back at good old Nico and scoff at him, this is exactly how you and I think in our natural state. This is exactly what we are like. Perhaps one of the greatest evangelists that we've seen in the past century is the late Billy Graham. He was uniquely gifted and used by God, no doubt. We give God glory for what he used Billy Graham to do. I was a little surprised to read a rather confusing article on a website that bears his name. Near the, it's, it's an article about being born again, by the way, that covers this passage. And near the end of the article, it reads, and I quote, Jesus Christ says that we must be born again. How do we become born again? By repenting of sin. That means we are willing to change our way of living. End quote. Now, you know, at first glance, everything that he's saying in there has a, an element of truth. You must repent of your sin. You must. Absolutely. But I can't help but sense a little bit of Nicodemus here. Jesus Christ is, says that you must be born again. How do you do it? You got to repent. That's how you do it. That's how you can cause your second birth. How do you do it? Well, you crawl back into your mother's womb. That's how you become born again. You return to your mother's womb. You repent of your sins. Of course, these are the things that you do. 
I must have some sort of physical effort that I must make in order to cause my spiritual rebirth. We think this way in part because we, like Nicodemus, we greatly diminish how bad off we are outside of Christ. On our best day, outside of Christ, do you know what we are on our best day? Depraved, wicked, condemned, deserving of the anger and fury of Almighty God. On our best day, Paul writes in Romans that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It cannot. So you want to know how to be reborn? Submit to God's law. That's how. This is all brought to a crescendo in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul tells us that we're dead. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. You ever had a car die on you? It doesn't matter how many times you turn your key or say, Come on, car, start! I have to get to work! It's hot out here, I need the air conditioner! Do any of those tricks work? If they do, please start a business where you start dead cars. Because it doesn't normally work. It doesn't work. The car is dead. And it doesn't matter how many times you yell at it or kick it or punch it or who knows what else that you need to ask for forgiveness for. Either way, it's dead. And this is not hyperbolic language that Paul uses in Ephesians. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. But the point that Jesus is making here and that he goes on to make is that there's nothing you do. There is a supernatural work of God that must take place. And that's our second heading here, focusing on verses 5 and 6. The new birth is a supernatural work of God. Look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do you see that? Nicodemus has just suggested a way that he could cause his rebirth. What does Jesus say? Essentially, nope. That's not right, Nicodemus. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. Here he restates what he said in verse 3. I want you to notice, look at verse 3 and 5. You'll notice that Jesus kind of changes his language. He swaps born again with born of water and the Spirit. And he swaps he cannot see the kingdom with he cannot enter the kingdom. What is Jesus saying here? Is he talking about two rebirths? That you need to be born again and you need to be born of the water and the Spirit? Well, that's not likely. As we said last week, the word translated here again, born again, can also be translated above, born from above. I believe that what Jesus is doing here is he's responding this way in verse 5 because he's explaining that to be born again is to be born from above. In other words, Nicodemus only understood Jesus to be talking about a sort of physical rebirth. But Jesus now is explaining that he has been talking about a spiritual rebirth, a birth of water and the Spirit. He's talking about being born from above. So he's restating in what he said in verse 3. 
to help Nicodemus understand that we're talking about something spiritual and supernatural here, Nicodemus. Something that must come from above. Something from heaven. Maybe that is so. But if it is, then why would Jesus speak of water and the Spirit? How does that help us to understand that this is being born from above and being uh, this is a supernatural work? Well, the way to answer that question is, how would Nicodemus have understood what Jesus is saying? Some say that water here is a reference to baptism, that you must be baptized and regenerate to see the kingdom of God. Now listen, we believe in the necessity of baptism, absolutely. We even believe of the great privilege of this ordinance, but we absolutely do not affirm baptismal regeneration. That is what the denomination known as the Church of Christ affirms, is that if you're not baptized, you're not born again. And to that, we would simply say, well, what happened to the man, the thief on the cross? Because I highly doubt the Romans allowed him to come down from the cross so that he could be quickly baptized. But Jesus sure did tell him, I tell you the truth, that you will be in paradise with me today. He didn't get baptized, friends. He didn't. Yet, he's with Christ even right now. Some people think that water here is a reference to human birth. Because we use the reference here in our context today of of the water breaking whenever we're talking about a woman going into labor. But how does that make sense? It seems a little unnecessary that Jesus would say, in order to see the kingdom of God, you need to be a person and born of the Spirit. You need to exist and then you can be born again. Well, obviously, that's, that probably goes without saying, considering the fact that he's talking to a person. No, it seems best to me to think about how a person well acquainted with the Scriptures could have, or perhaps even should have, though he probably didn't, understood this reference. Without question, Nicodemus would be most familiar with the great promise of God regarding the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. I know that you know this passage, but I'm going to read it. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and listen, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the great promise of God for the new covenant. This is what happens in the new birth. No doubt Nicodemus would know this passage. He would know that God is promising to cleanse his people from their old life, from their iniquity, and giving them his spirit. You know why the law failed in the Old Testament? The law didn't fail. You know why people failed to keep it? It's because they were not reborn and indwelt with the spirit of God. So they could not keep the spirit of the law. That's just what God is saying. I will make a new way 
I will put my spirit within you. I'm going to give you a new heart that's going to desire to obey me. Why do we need that? Because we have a heart of stone that does not desire to obey God. It's Paul's point in Romans that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't obey his law. It can't. It won't submit. That's the heart of stone. You need a new heart. Come on, Nicodemus. I know that you know this passage. To be born of the water and of spirit. This is the new birth. This is regeneration. It involves being cleansed of our own sins. The the sprinkling of clean water on us. And being given the righteousness. The desire for righteousness. It's a supernatural work of God in our heart. This is what Paul is summarizing in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Why? It was sprinkled with clean water. It was cleansed. The new has come. Why? Because God has put his spirit within you. So you're a new creation. Paul picks the thing up again in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Come on, Nicodemus. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is all done supernaturally. It is invisible to the naked eye. We cannot see it taking place, but we can see the effects of it having taken place. This is a miracle that God is performing in the human heart. That's why our efforts are powerless. It's a miracle. It's God putting a new spirit within you. It's not just moral reformation. It's not just doing better. It's becoming new. It's not just changing a little bit. It's complete transformation. Nicodemus, you think your life of righteous living and law keeping is enough to earn you a spot in heaven. In reality, you are so ruined by sin that you need a whole new life. You need a brand new one. You need a whole new software to be installed. You don't need to merely rearrange the furniture. You need a complete overhaul. You need to start at the foundation and start over. Nicodemus, you need God to perform a miracle in your heart. Think of what it would have been like to witness creation. We sang of God being from everlasting, and he's the everlasting God. Before the mountains were formed, he was there. Imagine being there at Genesis 1-1. The earth is formless and void. The Spirit is hovering over the waters, and suddenly God speaks into the darkness. Let there be light, and light explodes. And suddenly there are creeping and crawling things as the day progresses There are creeping and crawling things on the earth, in the sky above, in the waters below. There's this beautiful garden. There are two humans that suddenly appear from nowhere. There's this explosion of life and you get to sit and witness it. Imagine how incredible that would have been. Now think about your children who didn't exist at one time. 
I think about Jonah. Gabby and I didn't know him before he was born. Do you realize that you had no clue who your children were? You didn't even know their names, probably. You had no earthly idea. But out of nowhere, a miracle is performed in the womb of the mother. And life comes. Brand new life where there wasn't. And now your child is a whole new human being. This is an incredible miracle. And both of these examples pale in comparison to the miracle of regeneration. To the miracle of God creating a new heart, replacing a heart of stone and placing in there a heart of flesh. This is an absolutely incredible miracle that only can be wrought by the Spirit of God. You know, friends, this is why we should get so excited and passionate about the things of God. Because God created something new and beautiful where before there was only wickedness and ruin. Why should you live your life in total submission to God? Because there is new life where there was only deadness. And he gave it to you. Why should you serve in the church? Because God has made you a new creation. Why should you be generous with your brothers and sisters, with your time, energy, and finances? Because God has performed a miracle in you. It's a miracle. Because it is a miracle, because it is a supernatural work of God, the flesh, all human effort, is absolutely inadequate to bring this about or to in any way assist in God causing this new birth. I believe this is Jesus' point in verse 6. This is the inadequacy of human effort. The inadequacy of human effort. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus appeals to a, a very basic understanding of life, of reproduction, that like begets like a fish reproduces after its kind, a horse reproduces after its kind, a cat and a horse do not come together to make an apple. These things do not happen. You laugh because you understand that like begins, begets like. In fact, this is written into the code of the created order. Genesis 1.11, let the earth sprout vegetation Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. So, of course, one would only expect that that which is of the flesh is flesh. Flesh begets flesh. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus of a different kind of begetting, a different kind of life than mere human life as we know it. You see, Nicodemus has asked if an adult needed to go back into his mother's womb to be born again. He's missing the point that that which is of the flesh is flesh. So even if it were possible to be physically born a second time, it wouldn't matter anyway, because that which is of the flesh is flesh. You would only come out a sinful man who is dead in Adam as you are now. On your best day, 
You are dead in sin apart from Christ. That is the very best a human apart from Christ can do is to be dead in their sin. You know, I'm convinced that we give ourselves far too much credit outside of Christ. Well, you can do anything you set your mind to. You can't be reborn. You can't make yourself born again. You can't do this. It's a supernatural work of God. That's why we need this to be taken, to be done by God himself, because we can't bring it about. Or as Jesus states, that which is of the spirit is spirit. You need to be born to something entirely new. Jesus says it even more explicitly in chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. Here's Nicodemus. I, I know what I can do. I can crawl back into my mother's womb. The article from the Billy Graham website. Here's what you do. You repent of your sin. Jesus, the flesh is no help at all. None whatsoever. With all of this in mind, we can easily understand why Jesus says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said this to you. Come on. Don't be surprised. In other words, you should not be taken aback. This should not shock you. This should be easily understood by you, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel. Then surely you know that God is not looking for outward reform, but inward transformation. Transformation that can only be worked in the heart by the supernatural and sovereign work of God. Verse 7 or verse 8. The new birth is a sovereign work of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This verse challenges Sunday school theology. This verse challenges the coffee mug theology that so many of us have grown up with. It teaches here what theologians call monergism. With, with the view of monergism, God, through His Spirit, works alone, mono, alone, to bring about the salvation of a person. The opposite of this is called synergism, synergy, together. That God and man, somehow, they team up to bring about the salvation of that person. An example of that would be what I read to you earlier from Billy Graham's website. That to be born again, it requires you to do something. That would be synergism. But whether or not you ever remember those terms, we can see that what Jesus is teaching here is a singular effort. A singular effort. It is monergistic. It is Jesus. It is God. It is the Spirit. It is the triune God alone working in the heart of an individual without any help of that individual. This is the sovereignty of God and salvation. How did I arrive at this understanding? I want to back up a few steps before looking at how this verse in particular teaches this view 
Because we never want to form our theology from just one-off verses. Never want to do that. We want our theology, our doctrine, our way of believing to be formed by what the whole Bible says. That is how you can be consistent. I would just like to point you to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. You all remember as he was on the horse and he said, Lord, I would like to be saved, please. You remember? And then Jesus came to him and said, yes, sir, here I am. Let me help you, Paul. You remember? That's how it happened, right? Or did Saul literally get pushed off his high horse and suddenly fall to the ground? And Jesus said, essentially, you're mine now. Remember? That's how it worked. That is how salvation works. But I want you to consider our passage. Jesus is speaking of being born. As we've said a number of times, you and I contributed nothing to our first birth. And this is part of what is implied in using this kind of language. You did not cause yourself to be born. You cannot cause yourself to be born again. Second, Jesus' reference to the water and spirit of Ezekiel 36. Go read it. Ezekiel 36, 25-27. You can read the whole passage. It is amazing. But in those three verses that I read from, the word, the phrase, I will, is used six times. I will. I will. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you from your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Do you know what man is doing there? Receiving. You are on the receiving end of what God is doing. But what part did Israel specifically play in that promise of the new covenant? The sin that made it necessary. Do you want to know what you contribute to your salvation? Sin. The need to be saved because the flesh is no help at all. The third reason why I believe this passage is teaching us of the sovereignty of God in salvation is the statement of that which is flesh is flesh. All that a human can do is humanly things. Flesh can only do fleshly things. Those who are dead in Adam can only produce those who are dead in Adam. No one has ever given birth to a Christian. Do you know that? Everyone needs to be born again. I look at Jonah, and as sweet as he is, he needs to be born again. Apart from the sovereign work of God, my son stands no chance. Neither do either of us. That brings us to the fourth reason why I believe that this passage teaches us of the sovereignty of God in salvation, which is right here in verse 8. If those first three reasons are not enough, Jesus compares the movement of the Spirit to the movement of wind. There's some wordplay here in the original. The word for wind in the Greek is pneuma, and it can be translated as wind or spirit or breath. And it's used here in two ways. He says the wind, or pneuma, blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma. Born of the wind? Born of the Spirit. It could say the Spirit blows where it wishes. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the wind. Jesus here is comparing the movement of the Spirit to the movement of the wind. Now, you and I, we know about wind, don't we? In West Texas, if there's anything we do know, it is wind. But even though you and I are basically experts on how to survive a windy day, we don't have any any clue where the wind comes from. Have you ever stepped out on a windy day and asked that question? Well, where did this wind come from? Exactly. That's Jesus' point. Where did the wind come from? I don't even know. How do I stop it? You, you can't stop the wind, can you? When it's blowing, it's blowing. Meteorologists don't know. Nobody knows. We can't help the wind to continue to blow either, can we? Why you would do that, I don't know. But you can't go outside and help the wind blow. You can't stop the wind. You can't start the wind. You are absolutely at the wind's good pleasure, whatever the wind wants to do. But you know what we can do is that we can see the effects of the wind. We can see the rustling of the trees. We can see the blowing dust. We can see one another's windswept hair, but we can't even see the wind itself. We don't have a clue where it came from, where it is going, or even if it's going anywhere at all. We have no idea. All that we know is that the wind is blowing. And Jesus says, that's exactly what the movement of the Spirit is like. That's exactly what it's like. You cannot cause your spiritual rebirth. You cannot find where it came from. You cannot find, see it happening. You cannot even stop the Spirit from moving in you if God has set out to save you. No, the work of rebirth is a sovereign work of God in your heart. The work of the Spirit of God in your heart is also effectual. It produces an effect. We often hear people calling themselves a Christian while displaying zero evidence of the winds of change having blown in their hearts. When the wind blows, you will see its effects in a person's life. You will see it. When you were born into this world, you were born into sin. You were born into Adam. All of us were. And all of us are dead in Adam. Scripture even goes as far as calling us children of wrath. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. That's how bad off we are outside of Christ. Thus, all of our thoughts are only evil continually. We have minds that are set on the flesh. We can't please God. We won't come to God. We live for ourselves. Friends, whether it be the drug addict that is overdosing on the street, or if it's the clean-cut career man who is climbing the corporate ladder, who has four jets and gives a bunch of money to all kinds of charity. All of us are born into the family of wickedness. Every last one of us. So we all have the same nature. We all act like we are a part of that family. We behave that way because it is our nature. We live as those who are dead in sin. But when we are born again, we are born into a new family. 
We are given a new nature. We're born of a Father who is holy and righteous. So guess what new nature we are given? That of holiness and righteousness. You're given a new heart, not one that kind of does good things every now and again. You're given a new heart that hates sin. You're given a new heart that will struggle and wrestle against sin and long for the day where I can be done with a sinful body. I'm tired of sinning. That's how a Christian lives their life. Not, it's not that big a deal. Ah, it's, it's all right. It's okay. I, I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be a Pharisee. You know, often we're not more like a Pharisee than when we say, I don't want to be a Pharisee. There's an excellent illustration of this found in Ezekiel, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. In that passage, there's a word there that's similar to pneuma. It's ruach. It means word, spirit, or breath. In that passage, Ezekiel is told to prophesy to the breath or Ruach, and to say to the breath, come from the four winds, Ruach, come from the four winds, O breath, Ruach, and breathe on these slain that they may live. I believe that this is the sort of picture that Jesus is painting with words to Nicodemus. That we're all like those dry bones. We're cold and lifeless, helpless. Those bones were not moving. They were not going anywhere. They were doing nothing to contribute to their coming back to life. In Ezekiel's vision, even when the bones stand, sinew comes, the bones connect, and sinew comes, flesh comes and covers those skeletons. But you know what? They still stood lifeless. And my friends, so it is with us apart from Christ. When we are depending on our own righteousness, we can dress up our dead, dry bones all we want with every manner of religion. We can do everything in as far as a human can do, but we stand lifeless without the wind blowing. That is how we are apart from God. So the question is, has this happened to you? Now listen, I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer and been baptized? The question is not, have you served on a committee at church? The question is not, have you gone to church for a long time? The question is, has the wind blown in your life? Have you seen the effects in your life? You know, evidence that the Spirit of God has changed you is that you're still changed. That you didn't one day decide to live a little bit better, but that you are a new creation. Jesus has taught us clearly here, friends, that unless this has happened to you, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Unless the wind has blown you will not enter the kingdom. Perhaps you're realizing for the first time that this has not happened to you. And you sense a stirring in your heart. My friend, the wind is blowing. I would say to you, turn to Christ and believe upon him. Believe upon Jesus. If the wind is blowing, go where the wind is going. Repent of your sins and flee to him for mercy. Now some of us in here, I don't want to cause doubt in your mind if you are born again. So I want you to understand that sometimes the wind blows and it's a gale force wind. 
and it destroys houses and it can really make a mess. Sometimes it's very dramatic. So are some of our testimonies. They're very dramatic. And we can say the day and the hour where the Spirit came into our life. It caused us to be born again. But sometimes the wind is a gentle breeze. Sometimes it's just a subtle rustling of the autumn leaves. Sometimes that's all it is. And that's how some of our testimonies are. It's not this great, incredible, dramatic, instantaneous turn. It's more like the gentle breeze. Either way, whichever you are, understand that that is a sovereign and supernatural work of God that has taken place in your heart. So your trust is not that one day you said yes to Jesus. Your trust, your trust is that one day the wind blew. The wind blew and the Spirit came and gave you new life. Let's stand. The new birth is necessary if we are to see the kingdom of God. And no human effort can replicate this happening in the human heart as it is a sovereign and supernatural work of God whereby he gives you a new heart and a new nature. And without the new birth, nothing you can do can get you into the kingdom. But if you have been reborn, no one can keep you out of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that your children, those who have been born again, leave here so encouraged, knowing that the everlasting God has come and poured his spirit into their hearts. Lord, for those who are not born again, I pray that you would make it clear and that your spirit would blow and your spirit would change. Lord, we are absolutely at your disposal. Nothing can happen apart from your spirit. So we ask that you would move both to encourage and to change. We pray this in your name. Amen.